This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Piki mai kake mai and a big welcome to our changing world. Ko Alison Balance ho. Later on, we'll hear about places that are named after plants and animals and what that can tell us about where things used to live. But first, sarcopenia is to muscle what osteoporosis is to bone. It's a progressive loss of lean muscles as you get older, particularly in your arms and legs, the bits that scientists like to call appendicular muscle mass. Sarcopenia is one of the main reasons we become frail as we age. And if you're young and don't think this is relevant to you, well, actually it is. That's because how much muscle mass you have when you're younger, in your 20s and early 30s, determines in part how much you'll have when you're old. Start off with weak, small muscles, and you'll most likely end up with very weak muscles. I'm off to the Department of Medicine at the University of Otago to meet Deborah Waters. She knows a lot about ageing, and in particular, about sarcopenia. So the current definition of sarcopenia is actually relative lean body mass, but also a measure of either gait speed or grip strength. So it's a combination of the two now that we use. So sarcopenia, for me, as I get older, I'm probably going to lose muscle mass. I won't be as strong, like my grip won't be as strong, and I might end up walking more slowly as Does it boil down to that? Yes, it does. (laughs) Yes. And sarcopenic obesity, kind of the skinny fat of older age, and it's much harder to identify because you're losing lean body mass, your fat is staying the same, your bone is also decreasing, so it's masked basically by BMI, our common measure of body mass index, and it's also masked by weight. So people can have quite profound changes in their skeletal muscle mass that is not picked up in typical clinical measures. In other words, your weight and even your BMI might seem to stay the same, but an increasing amount of fat is masking the fact that you're also losing both muscle and bone mass. Now, while Deborah says there's a lot of debate about how to exactly clinically define sarcopenia and sarcopenic obesity, there is also some good news. Sarcopenia is not inevitable. It is modifiable. So we have lots and lots of research that's gone on looking at exercise, protein supplements, combination of both. And unfortunately, a lot of this research has not used the same kinds of interventions, exercise or dietary interventions. So it's been 
tricky when we use um, systematic reviews and meta-analysis to try to combine all these studies to get at an answer of what should we be doing. The most accepted is that progressive resistance exercise is really quite key. And the weight-bearing exercises that we've always said were so important is still important, but it generally is not enough to stop and slow that loss of, of skeletal muscle mass as we age. So you really need something more intense. So weight-bearing exercises could be me walking around the block? Yes. Resistance exercise, what am I going to have to do? Lift weights. <laughs> and even your own body weight might be enough. Um, even doing things like walking up steep hills is a, a bigger stress on your muscles than just walking around the block. But you certainly can reverse and certainly slow that process by doing resistance exercise and having adequate amounts of protein in your diet. So it doesn't necessarily mean going to the gym and doing lots of weightlifting? No, no, not necessarily. I, I think you know people could do plenty on their own if they were motivated <laughs> enough to do it in their own homes. The trials that I've been involved with in the U.S. where we had obese, frail, sarcopenic people going through very intense lifestyle interventions of exercise, resistance exercise, aerobic exercise, a combination of both, and dieting, were hugely successful in turning people's frailty and loss of lean body mass around. Dieting by itself is not a good idea for people who are sarcopenic and obese because you will just drive further losses of lean body mass and skeletal muscle mass. So, so what do they need to do? Eat more protein? They need to do resistance exercise alongside of the dieting. And also the combination of aerobic and resistance seems quite effective. Now tell me more about sarcopenic obesity, this skinny on the outside, fat on the inside. Oh, it's a tricky beast <laughs> because it is hard to identify. And so more and more we're starting to look at these functional measures because people who are sarcopenic and obese consistent findings in research across the world is that they have poor physical functioning than people who are obese alone, who have normal lean body mass, or people who are sarcopenic alone, who have low muscle and low fat. So that combination of high fat, low muscle is really detrimental to function, and it's a tricky one to clinically identify. So we're starting to move more towards identifying people through things such as grip strength, walking speed, sit-to-stand, if you have a BMI that's 30 or higher and you are weak at the same time, you are much more likely to be sarcopenic and obese than someone who has normal, it's like a sit-to-stand. And that's a common measure, and that's one that... So is, and that's as simple as going, I'm sitting in a chair, can I get up unassisted? Yes, unassisted, yes. If, if like you I can rise to my feet like I've just oh, done. Very good, brilliant. Okay. <laughs> yes, not using your hands. <laughs> and that's the key, not pushing yourself out of the seat with using your arms. And that's a key one that we see clinically, that if people struggle to stand up out of a chair and can't do that without you pushing off of their arms, their lower limbs are probably not very strong. And and then if they're also in that obese BMI, not an ideal measure because it doesn't pick up everything, but it can tell you enough to say, should we explore this further in a clinical setting? Is this person obese? They're also weak. Uh, not a good combination. Maybe you want to do a DEXA scan if you have that available to you. A BIA, bioelectrical impedance, is another measure that we use. Um, but that sarcopenic obese one is the one that we're, we're really keen to get people identified because that is the one that is more related to functional deficits. And the more functional deficits you have, like sit-to-stand and step tests and other common measures that we use, put you on that trajectory to become frail, 
Once you start losing your function, you tend to stop and lower your physical activity in response to that. And that starts that slippery slope down. Self-fulfilling. Mm, mm, that kind of vicious cycle. Down, down, down. <laughs> what do you need to do? Can you reverse it? Your first step should be to try to increase that lean body mass. So start your muscle building first. Start your muscle building first. And also start doing some, you know, aerobic activities to try to, you know, maintain some of that function in the lower limb and not worry so much about the, the weight loss initially. And you might actually see a slight increase in the weight, but you're shifting that body composition to a more healthy ratio of fat to lean. So you're better off building up a bit of muscle mass and putting up with the fact that you're a bit overweight. Yes. It's a, he- a healthier place to be. It is, as long as you don't have any kind of metabolic kinds of problems from being obese or overweight um, because you can, as we've shown in the, in the U.S., um, quite dramatically change body composition for the better and function for the better and people feel better and they report their own quality of life is better. Is this an inevitable thing as you age? The loss of skeletal muscle mass is inevitable, but it is certainly different in di- different trajectories in different people and, it, and we're looking at this right now in the Dunedin Multidisciplinary Study of where does this really begin? And it does begin <laughs> apparently quite a bit earlier in life. So it begs the question, as we know with bone, if you don't hit your peak bone mass, you are on a different trajectory into osteopenia, osteoporosis, than people who have maintain, who have reached a very high peak bone mass. So I would imagine, and this is what we don't know yet, but it would it would make sense since bone and muscle are very interrelated with each other, that if you don't hit peak muscle mass in your earlier ages, 25 to 30, your trajectory is going to, particularly if you're not physically active, is going to be quite a bit sharper than someone who starts at a higher level, stays physically active longer in, in, into old age than someone who doesn't have that peak, never becomes physically active and maintains that low physical activity and then becomes obese in older age. So, What is it that exercise does for muscles? It's a stimulus to be able to increase. In younger ages, you can um, actually see quite dramatic hypertrophy where you get increase in the actual muscle cell size and volume. And you still see that even in the older people that we've done some of these randomized controlled trials on. They will see increases of 4% in their lean body mass. So it's not that you can't increase your lean body mass in old age. And, and you can actually do very little exercise and see quite a dramatic increase in function in the muscle. So you get an increase in the actual nervous kind of way, nervous stimulation and the way that muscle functions as well as the muscle cells themselves increase. So what would your message to older people be? Keep moving <laughs> for a lot of different reasons, um, not just for muscle health and body composition, lowering fat mass, but also Functionally, you you maintain your gait and your balance and your overall function by staying active much longer into later life. If you can maintain some level of function, it will change, and for a good reason. Um, As vision changes, as your proprioception and your ability to feel your body in space and, and on the ground changes, you know, you do need to be careful climbing ladders and doing lots of things that you would do without even thinking about. As you're younger, you might think a little bit more carefully about what you're doing, but certainly staying active. My father is now 90, and he's has lots of challenges with being physically active because of pain, but he's still out there and on his recumbent bike in the garage and pedals away and <laughs> wants to maintain his function. So, yeah, I think if there are, people are motivated to maintain function. The more you can do 
the longer you can do it, just maintain it as long as you can and adapt it as you need to. And if you haven't been doing exercise for a while, then start doing it, but build up gently and don't rush at it. Yes, that's right. And and we're lucky. We're very fortunate in Dunedin and in New Zealand now across the country. We have lots of strength and balance classes that are on offer and it's part of the ACC lead agency model that they're using, and also Age Concern has the study as you go in the Otago exercise programs, you know, either home-based or community-based, and then they're really an excellent way to kind of, if you haven't been doing things, to start yourself off getting some exercises, and certainly if you'd prefer home exercises, that's a great way to get yourself, you know, back on track with doing kinds of activities. You know, and then we got green prescription, which can help people to, you know, through their physicians to find out what's available in their communities and and be able to start either doing community-based or home-based kinds of activities. So on our Changing World recently, we've been hearing about how toxic loneliness is. So there's an element in, in the exercising that you've been talking about that you could build social networks into that as well. Absolutely. And for people who like to, to exercise in groups that... I think it's such an important component. That's what we've seen with the Steady As You Go falls prevention, strength and balance classes that are wildly popular now, particularly around Dunedin. And those started out, and they still are, where a physician might tell someone that you, they really have a, have issues with their strength and balance and should go be part of these classes. And what we found with the research that we did was that it was the social component these classes have 10 weeks together, then they become peer-led classes. And we have classes that have been running continuously since 2003. <laughs> and there's now over, well, I might be misquoting, but I think around 1,500 people in and around Dunedin who are doing these peer-led classes. And when we evaluated these classes, the strong message was it is the social interaction, the social camaraderie that we get out of these classes that keeps us coming back. And I think that's key to what we see in, in older people and decreasing that social isolation and keeping that social connectedness with people to keep people feeling positive about the exercise. It might be go to the class, do 45 minutes, it's not very exciting, but then you get to sit and have a cup of tea and catch up. <laughs> and that's key to keeping people engaged. Do you have any sense what the older population in New Zealand is like compared to other bits of the world? Are we pretty much the same? Are we better off? Are we worse off? I would say because there's more of a focus, I think, with outdoor education and younger ages that I see from from how I compare it to the U.S., there's certainly a very active component in young age. I think as people get older, unfortunately, we're seeing obesity rising in older adults in this country, as well as Australia, that we've seen in Europe, that we see in the U.S. So to change that in middle age, I think, is really key. That's where we need to start looking at you know, what's going on, and, and as, we see, as we're seeing with the Dunedin study, how do we stop that trend to become, you know, where our body mass index and obesity peaks in that middle age, 55 to 65. So if you can stop that from happening and maintain that physical activity in youth into older age and, and having that message where getting outside and doing activities and maintaining that active lifestyle is so important to maintain that body composition and function into later life is is key. That's a very important public health message. But I think New Zealand does reasonably well because it is a more outdoor culture, but it's not immune to some of the things that we've seen going on in other parts of the world. Thanks, Deborah. 
That was Deborah Waters, and she is Director of Gerontology Research in the Department of Medicine at the University of Otago. Kei te whakaronga mai koe ki tō tātou au horihori. Hei hōtaka e pāna ki tō tātou au whanui. This is Our Changing World on RNZ, and I'm Alison Balance. Now, o Tōtora Stream and the Upper Hutt suburb of Tōtora Park, examples of New Zealand places named after plants. Then there's places named after birds. Kiwi Nui near Gisborne, Kaka Nui near Oamaru, and Pigeon Bay on Banks Peninsula. Jamie Wood from Manaki Whenua Landcare Research has been taking a look at New Zealand place names, and I caught up with him at the recent New Zealand Ecological Society conference to find out more. So a lot of my research focuses on uh, looking into the past to see what plants and animals used to live in New Zealand and how they were distributed across New Zealand. And you do this by looking at bones? Yeah, that's probably the main way we've done it in the past, uh, but we're looking at a range of different techniques now as well. Tell me about those. We use sedimentary DNA, so just by taking samples of sediment we can get DNA of these animals. And one of the things we've just started doing is actually looking at place names around New Zealand and using that as a record of where um, species used to be in the past. Okay, so the first place name that comes to mind for me then is Paikakariki, just north of Wellington, because Kakariki is parakeet. Mm -hmm. We've found this great resource that's available online, which is the Gazette of New Zealand Place Names, and it has over 50,000 place names, not just official ones, but also unofficial ones. Um, And so the work I've been doing is using that as a starting point. And so we've quite simply been going through that and querying it for different uh, species names and then picking out those names and plotting them on maps and looking to see how that compares with known distributions of species. We've looked at some plants so for example we've used kauri and uh, karaka as examples to show how the distribution of place names fits really well with distributions of some of these plant species. We've looked at invertebrates There's not a huge number of place names named after invertebrates. There's some wetter hills in the Beetle Gully. But one thing we've found is there's a lot of sandfly and mosquito place names because they've clearly made quite a big impact on early explorers. And they seem to fit quite well. They're concentrated along the west coast of the South Island. But by far and away, birds are the most common place names relating to animals. So you mentioned kauri already. Well, that's clearly a northern species, so you only see kauri place names up north as well. Are you seeing that pattern? Yep, definitely. Um, They're all up north, and in fact they match the distribution of the species very well. So we don't see any place names uh, relating to kauri that are outside the natural range of kauri now. Did you find some anomalies? Did you find place names that referred to things that aren't there now that made you think, oh, I wonder what was here in the past? Yes, certainly. If we look at a couple of our birds, for example, so uh, we look at Kiwi place names, um, we find that uh, about 50% of place names um, relating to Kiwi don't have Kiwi within the area anymore. So we're looking there at about a 50% decline in um, the range of Kiwi since those place names were given. Things like Kākāpō, there's a lot of Kākāpō place names throughout New Zealand and in fact none of them have Kākāpō anymore so that's that's one species that's changed quite a bit but if we go back to records from the mid-19th century we can actually show that the distribution of Kākāpō at that time reflects those place names pretty well. 
it's the large birds that tend to dominate in the place names and uh, probably because they're the ones that were obvious to people. Smaller birds don't seem to have as many place names um, related to them. An interesting thing is place names relating to extinct species. So there's things like huia and moa that have a lot of place names um, and again they seem to match the distribution of those birds pretty well. Did you map all of this out and did you see any patterns around where the names were? Uh, Certainly in terms of birds we did. Um, So we plotted all of the bird-related place names we could find in there's about five or six hundred in this database, um, which is about one percent of the total place names in New Zealand. Um, And they were spread right across New Zealand, but there were some big gaps, and they tended to be places like the Southland Plains, the Canterbury Plains, um, and around the Waikato. So these are areas that by the mid-19th century didn't actually have much forest um, left. And so it might have been that those areas just didn't have large bird populations and that's reflected in the lack of place names relating to birds at those sites. So in a way you've got two tiers of place names because you've got Māori place names that were there first and then you've got later place names that were named by particularly the early settlers and explorers. That's right. So what we've been doing is a very simple pilot study, just using a single database, but there are other databases out there and knowledge about place names that might not be recorded in our database. And I think a really cool study would be to look at some of those Maori place names and assuming that they have some um, place deeper into the past and then looking at European place names, which are from 100, 150 years ago, we might actually be able to see changes in species distributions through time. Thanks, Jamie. That was Jamie Wood from Manaki Whenua Landcare Research. And that's the show. You can listen again to tonight's stories at our webpage, rnz.co.nz slash ourchangingworld. You can also subscribe to us as a podcast at Apple Podcasts, Spotify and most other podcast places. Just search for RNZ Our Changing World. Stay in touch with us on Twitter and Facebook, where we are RNZ Science. Thanks for your company. But for now, it's good night from me, Alison Balance. Kia pai topo. Botox Cosmetic, out of botulinum toxin A, FDA approved for over 20 years. So, talk to your specialist to see if Botox Cosmetic is right for you. For full prescribing information, including boxed warning, visit BotoxCosmetic.com or call 877-351-0300. Remember to ask for Botox Cosmetic by name. To see for yourself and learn more, visit BotoxCosmetic.com. That's BotoxCosmetic.com.